Hi, I'm Isabel. I'm four years old. At least it's my mom. This week on the show, Washington Post, tech culture reporter Natasha Tiku, and Furhan Maju, opinion columnist from the New York Times. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all. I'm Elise Hugh in for Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. We're coming to you this week from NPR member station KQED in San Francisco. And I'm joined by our guests this week that were introduced by my four-year-old, Natasha Tiku, tech culture reporter at The Washington Post. Hey, Natasha. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to see you in real life. I know. <laughs> We've talked a <laughs> lot before. Years, exactly. Yeah. And Farhad Manju, an opinion columnist at a little newspaper you might know called The New York Times. Hey, Farhad. Hey, good to be here. Do y'all know who we're listening to? Yes, Billie Eilish. There you go. Do you know why she's in the news? <laughs> no. She's going to do the James Bond theme song? That's right. Really? The 18-year-old yeah. has been chosen to create the theme song for No Time to Die, the next Daniel Craig James Bond flick. She calls it a huge honor. What do you think of the choice? I didn't really know this was a huge honor. Like, I didn't know <laughs> that, that Bond theme song was like a prize up for grabs but it you know her sort of style does seem to fit with if I were to pick an artist who would be James Bondy she seems kind of James Bondy yeah I think maybe the James Bond franchise is angling for like TikToks <laughs> um, Billie Eilish is very <laughs> oh. popular on TikTok so you know um, maybe by honor it's also like a good financial incentive for everyone yeah marketing um, Daniel Craig has said this is his last Bond he's been doing it since Casino Royale in 2006 when Billie Eilish was four years old. <laughs> Wild. Okay, let's get into the news. Each week we ask our guests to describe some news from the week in three words. This week, because we're here in San Francisco, y'all have some news and tech intersections, I presume, for your three words. Yeah. Natasha, you go first. Okay, my three words are um, stuck in neutral, which I think describes the way that um, like kind of intractable social and political topics in Silicon Valley, we often end up reverting back to square one. Hmm. So I think of it as like a regressive tendency. And it really came into focus for me recently when I was working on this um, profile of this top uh, Google public policy executive named uh, Ross Lajeunesse. Okay. And he alleges that he was pushed out of the company last year for um, demanding that Google make stronger commitments to prioritizing human rights, which is something that he um, thought was necessary when he learned about Project Dragonfly. I don't know if you guys are... So well, the I know Chinese Farhad search is. engine? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The censored um, Android search app, which would link your phone numbers to your searches. Obviously, a huge concern um, in China. And Ross had been working for Google for 11 years. But the really interesting thing about him is that he was Google's man in China in 2010. Hmm. Well, just to back up a little bit. Yeah, um, remind us why Google yeah. had to take a stance about its China policy anyway. So they first launched a censored search engine in 2006. And, you know, the argument at the time was that Google would be able to make the society more open. They would be candid about what was being censored. Um, and of course, that's not what China happened. don't play that. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the government was emboldened. They asked for more takedowns. <laughs> and then um, Google discovered that there was a really sophisticated cyber attack originating in China to look at the Gmail accounts, to hack the Gmail accounts of dissidents and human rights activists. And, and that could have been 
at the behest of the state or the state doing it. That is what is implied between the lines. Um, you know, when I went back to 2010 and I'm reading the arguments about like, oh, you know, we didn't know that this was going to you know, fall out this way. I guess we have a new responsibility. And it felt like a decade later you know, the same debate is happening. And rather than have a conversation about like, okay, obviously, you know, Google just turned into a trillion dollar company. Um, You know, we're a trillion dollar company. We are financially incentivized to go into countries with weak rule of law. Let us put in um, measures of accountability, some external oversight, like look at UN standards, commit to those publicly. It's like back to square one of like, well, is censored search results in China a good Thing. And I just noticed this They're just tendency. having the same argument. Yeah. yeah. I read um, Ross's Medium posts as sort of like telling why he left Google and yeah. sort of arguing that it had changed. And I thought it was really interesting because, I mean, I think a lot of people have documented this huge change within Google where it used to be kind of this freewheeling internal culture and it really kind of became the template for, I think, all uh, tech companies mm-hmm. since then. Like, you know, Uber is sort of Google-ish and Facebook is kind of run in, in that way. Um, but but now, you know, you and others have, have documented how Google is just sort of changing. They have this uh, big kind of anti-union push in the company. They've fired organizers. They fired sort of internal activists. It seems like a different kind of company. And also, it seems like you can't raise these things, these concerns within Google the way you may have once been able to. It's rather wild to me that we rely, like as a society, we rely on these giant companies to be benevolent. Because for so long, it's just like, well, Google hasn't really acted poorly. So Mm -hmm. they can just continue to run things. And we will trust or give them this inherent trust that they can run our massive systems and have a huge lever on society without complaint. But that sort of raises the issue of whether there should be more responsible parties. Yeah, exactly. And where do you come down on that? Yeah, well, I I think that, you know, the China question is fascinating because that's actually, I think, where the myth of like this conscientious tech worker Mm -hmm. who's going to step in if anybody crosses the line came into play. And you just can't rely on the personal, you know, morality or (laughs) politics of any individual executive. You know, that was like in that case, it was um, Sergey Brin, Google's co-founder. But as we've seen, you know, that Larry and Sergey sort of pushed out of Google. Google. And so I think having those, like they don't want anyone in the room who's going to seriously question them. I think we've seen that across the board with the push for self-regulation um, from every tech company. But, you know, the time is way past nigh. To- so does that mean it's time for external regulation? I feel like with external regulation, that's like step 10, and we don't even have like basic transparency right now into the Yikes. decisions that they're making. Yeah, although I think, you know, we're seeing this push for regulation. It's really coming from Washington and activists and other companies. I really wonder if consumers really care at all. Um, I don't think it's been sort of a politically resonant issue. Um, and the companies are doing really well. Like the market doesn't seem to think that they're going to be in for any kind of regulation at this point, you know. I think that kind of getting to a place where the public and regulators and the companies can, you know, put really effective controls on on these companies, I, I, it seems a long way off to me. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Elise Hugh, in for Sam Sanders, here this week at NPR member station KQED with Natasha Tiku, tech culture reporter at The Washington Post, and Farhad Manju, opinion columnist at The New York Times. Farhad, you're up. What are your three words? 
unlock your iPhone? <laughs> Question mark? Does that count? <laughs> Question mark? Yeah, no, that's perfect. Uh, Say more. There's been this fight between law enforcement and tech companies about encryption, about how law enforcement, how the courts can get access to your data on your devices. And um, the fight has really been between Apple and the FBI. Um, and it kind of came about again last week when Attorney General Bill Barr criticized Apple for not doing enough, he said, to get them inside the phone of the shooter at the naval base in Pensacola, mm-hmm. Florida last year. And the FBI wants to get inside the phone and Apple has ways for them to get into sort of cloud data, but the phone itself, all the data on it is encrypted and you need some kind of face ID or fingerprint or code to get inside and law enforcement can't get inside. But neither can Apple, right? Apple neither claims can Apple. that so it the, can't right. Get so the, so the way Apple has designed these phones is you know, they say out of um, respect for, for privacy, if you don't have a, a legal way to get into the phone, you can't. Um, the data is encrypted and Apple says it doesn't have a way to get inside. The, the fight then really becomes like whether Apple should build some way for law enforcement to access the data on your phone. This is a um, kind of a reprise of a battle they had in 2016 when the FBI at the time was wanting Apple to open uh, the phone of the terrorist in San Bernardino, California. And there was a sort of a big legal fight. And at the last minute, the FBI dropped its fight before there was going to sort of be any kind of real courtroom action. And they went to a third party cybersecurity company that, you know, got them inside the iPhone. But that route, according to the FBI, Mm -hmm. is sort of drying up like Apple patches the, the security flaws in its phones. And so they're sort of less vulnerable to kind of other ways to get into the phone. So, I mean, this is a, a fight that I think is going to be with us for a while because there's this kind of fundamental question of should we let law enforcement get at our phones? You know, if they have a, a well, legal way. In the name of public safety is law enforcement's or the government's argument, right? Yeah. I mean, but there's a I think there are a lot of other considerations here. You know, we were talking about other governments. If if Apple builds a way for the FBI to get inside your phone, that same way could be used if, uh, you know, the government of Saudi Arabia orders it to get inside someone's phone or China or someone else. You know, um, Apple has to obey the laws wherever it, it operates. And so their argument is that it makes everyone less safe if you have some kind of backdoor into the iPhone. And um, I think it's just going to be a battle that we have, you know, over the next decade or more to figure out, like, what is the line there between, you know, when law enforcement can get inside a phone and, um, you know, not just phones, kind of all of our digital devices now. What's different about the stakes now in 2020 and with this administration versus the last time? I mean, it's a it's in some ways the the fight is the same, but all the context has changed. So, (laughs) you know, Tim Cook has been really one of the best friends of the Trump administration in in uh, the various different rounds of tariffs imposed on China. Apple um, got waivers and got exempted from a number of them because, you know, Tim Cook has sort of played the game well. And I think that it's going to be uh, more difficult for kind of Apple to navigate this, especially because Trump is just much more aggressive than the Obama administration was about this uh, question. Natasha, what have you observed as you've watched this latest round of this privacy versus public safety battle? Um, Well, what Farhad was saying about the context changing, I think that's so key. You know, like the the hypothetical authoritarian regime abusing this backdoor Mm -hmm. just is, is, you know, 
in the headlines. Like yeah. you don't you don't really have to stretch your imagination at all. I mean, we we uh, at the New York Times have been doing this uh, year long project on on privacy, and that. we have you know uh, seen in that project and kind of in a number of other reporting that there is. Just so much data that the um, tech industry collects on people that and it's so hard to avoid, you know, even if you don't use Facebook, even if you don't have any, uh, you know, a smart home device, there's so much that um, these companies can get about you in a very, very intimate way um, and know, you know, essentially everything about you more than like any close family member knows about you. And um, this raises the stakes for, you know, the security of uh personnel around the world, the yeah. security of like, uh, you know, your family, your safety. And it just makes it very, a much more kind of high stakes battle because, uh, you know, you get inside the data on somebody's phone, you really know everything about them. And there's a real chilling effect to feeling as if you're surveilled or just knowing that you were su- surveilled, right? Um, I was based in Asia. And so China comes up mm-hmm. as an example a lot. And a lot of times reporters uh, would return to their homes and there would be policemen in their homes just rummaging through drawers, not to take anything, you know, they're not thieves, but just to make you aware that you were being watched. And so there is a chilling effect to that, whether you are a regular person, a journalist who's supposed to be a check on power, or the power itself. So in light of all of this, what do you think we should be doing collectively to better stand up for our values? I mean, the thing that I would say is like, my biggest takeaway from kind of thinking about privacy over the last year is that I am much more cautious about adopting technology, or I think people should be more cautious about adopting new technology. I think one of the things that we should all do is just sort of slow down. Like, uh, I'm really worried about cameras everywhere. Like, there's been this huge discussion about this company, this doorbell camera company called Ring, which Amazon owns, Mm -hmm. um, which Amazon bought, you know, relatively recently, you know, was a huge success. Lots of people are installing these doorbell cameras because it makes sense to, you know, it seems like a convenient technology. Someone rings your doorbell, you know, not home or you want to see who it is and you can just look at your phone and and see who's at your door. But the company is um, creating this weird like neighborhood watch program (laughs) and allowing law enforcement to look at your camera. They like subsidized it so that law enforcement could get access to your camera. And people are putting them in their like children's room, you know, using them as like a baby monitor. And the security has various flaws in it. You know, people have hacked these cameras and you hack a you hack a home security camera and suddenly you know everything about those people. And I think what was interesting is that people just rushed to buy these cameras like the company did really well Mm -hmm. um, without considering the implications of like, are we creating a neighborhood surveillance uh, device that is going to profile everyone who comes to, on our street? Like that could cons- that could easily happen. I mean, it's sort of there are um, parts of it that are happening already, and no one really had this discussion. Yeah, consider the implications before you adopt. Yeah, got it. All right, time for a break. When we come back, imagine an issue of Vogue magazine without. Any photos? Why the magazine's Italian version went illustration only for its latest issue after the break. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Elise Hugh. We'll be right back.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. Zoom Phone is a top-tier cloud phone solution with the same ease of use and reliability that you've come to expect from Zoom meetings. Zoom Phone works seamlessly within the Zoom app as your business phone system to make and receive phone calls, capture call recordings, and easily escalate to video if the need arises. And it works wherever you are, in the office or on your mobile device. Sign up for Zoom Phone online at zoom.com and meet happy with Zoom. Support also comes from Discover. Did you know that Discover matches all the cash back you earn at the end of your first year? Plus, it's automatic, and there's no limit to how much you can earn or how much they'll match. Millions of people a year are getting their cash back matched like rain falling from the sky. Cash back match only from Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash match. The Indicator is a little show that tells big stories about the economy. In just 10 minutes, we tackle important topics like unemployment, the housing market, and how Justin Bieber saved the Icelandic economy. That happened. NPR's The Indicator from Planet Money. Listen now. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Elise Hugh, in for Sam Sanders, here this week at NPR member station KQED with Natasha Tiku, tech culture reporter at The Washington Post. Hey, Natasha. Hey. And Farhad Manju, columnist at The New York Times. What is up? Hey. So have you heard about the best feel-good story of last weekend? Diego, the giant tortoise. Oh, yeah, the guy, the tortoise that had sex a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear this, no, Natasha? I didn't. So, Diego, the giant tortoise, I love this story so much. He was sent from the San Diego Zoo down to the Galapagos Islands Whoa. as part of a breeding program about 40 years ago because there were only something, some very small number of tortoises left on the island of Espanola. And after his campaign of sexual promiscuity, there are now 2,000 tortoises. 40% believed to have been fathered by Diego. Um, but yeah, Diego's now retiring. So is he going back to LA? He's 100, he's 100 years old. Wait, seriously? And he's fathered, wow. yeah. yeah. They, they live past 100. Yeah, he's 100. Yeah. He's fathered like 800 babies. He's done his work. I feel like we have a lot to learn from the Galapagos because did you guys remember a few years ago there was the story about like a romance between two of the tortoises where they would give each other tomatoes and they had like decades long love affair but then just like decided they didn't want anything to do with each other. Maybe it was Diego. (laughs) I don't don't think so but I'll send you the link. Next week in our Tortoise Chronicles. So something intentionally different graced the pages of Vogue magazine's Italian edition this month. Not radical fashion, but a radical idea. Editors put out the magazine without any glossy photographs. The entire edition is made up of illustrations, something not seen in Vogue's pages since the early 20th century. Vogue Italia came out with several different covers for its January issue, each cover by a different artist. These artists don't typically illustrate fashion, so the result is rather striking. One includes a painting of a woman with a long stretched neck and curves and pink and brown. Another by a Mozambique American painter depicts a bloody mosquito hovering near the drawing of a model. To talk about this issue, the magazine's creative director, Ferdinando Verderi, joined me from Milan. He said this decision to go photo-free isn't just about art or design. It's about sustainability, starting with what it takes to create a photo shoot. 
in a photo shoot, which is what everything is made of today in the editorial world, is uh, often, especially at these levels, um, a very complex production. There are tons of flights involved, clothes shipped internationally, up to 10 people flying from all over the world to one location, and a very huge display of uh, effort uh, that obviously um, in the conversation on sustainability translate into waste pollution and carbon footprint. We don't think about what's so wasteful, I guess, about a magazine's production until you list things out like this. Well, no, nor do we. You start looking at your own day-to-day and you realize that before speaking about about broader topics that you can hardly affect, you better start sort of looking into what you can affect. And I think for us, it was really like a provocation to ourselves. Like, can a magazine be great or better if we drastically challenge the way it's produced? Well, what do you think? What is your reaction to how it turned out as a creative director? And well, obviously, then... obviously, I am I am uh, partial to this question because I've actually been trying to introduce illustration as a language since my very first issues a few months ago. I'm, I'm new here, a few months in. And um, I have sort of a lot of heart for illustration and drawing as a medium that connects to the origins of, of Vogue. I'm very pleased with uh, the reception from the public, which has been incredible. And that's sort of the main goal for me, to see how a visual language that has been replaced by photography as the main, the main language of fashion uh, still can attract so much interest and emotions. And uh, also I'm very pleased about how the idea came across. And um, obviously, the, this is not just an art issue. It's an issue that has a very strong point and that tries to demonstrate it in a lighthearted and uh, positive way, trying to propose uh, what could be a very old solution to a new problem, because obviously, illustration precedes us all. In this magazine, you're highlighting the cost of production for fashion spreads. but Yes. The production of a fashion spread or a fashion shoot is small compared to the environmental impact of the clothing industry writ large. Yeah. So yeah. how are you thinking about the industry in which you work in light of how much it costs in emissions just to produce and manufacture and ship clothing? And then this clothing obviously changes styles every season. It's a big conversation. What we did, it started from the inside that we just wanted to look at what we can do to affect our, our day to day and inspire other publications to look into the way we operate. I'm sure that fashion being a creative uh, industry at heart will find a solution that has some beauty in it, but um, it is definitely not uh, not an easy one. There is obviously like an inherent conflict between selling clothes and uh, the fact that clothes are often the cause of production processes that pollute. It's hard to imagine in the future but uh, there is definitely lots of interest and opportunities to make a difference. I want to ask a little bit about Italy because the whole world watched yeah. as so much of Venice flooded this winter. And Venice has always been a city at risk as sea levels rise because of climate change. So I wonder, did the way climate change became so visible in Venice affect your thinking or affect the editor-in-chief's thinking about this issue? And if so, how? I didn't say yet that the savings that are a byproduct of this new production went to a foundation in Venice that is related to the conservation of art and uh, and the, the, the beauty of the city. And uh, So the proceeds go back to Venice? 
the savings that uh, resulted from this streamlined production process, which is the one of illustration versus photography. Oh, um, right, the savings, okay. Yeah, exactly, it went there. And we are uh, dedicating a, an issue in February, partially to this huge uh, problem that Venice is facing, uh, and it's just something that is close to us because we are obviously geographically close and culturally really close, but it's uh, symbolic for a broader issue, obviously, that uh, affects so many parts of the world. So Venice and its tight connection to the sea level and to nature is for us a symbol for, for obviously a global issue. You mentioned that the reaction to this issue has been exceedingly positive. You also mentioned that you wanted this to spark a conversation, a larger conversation about the industry. Has it? I think it has, and I think it has received praise and criticism. The criticism is that, well, you're doing an issue and then you're going back to doing it normal. Yes, I mean, this is part of the idea. I think this is not the solution, but it is a, a provocation, an experiment to show how creativity, which is one of the the Vogue values, creativity is the most relevant, uh, powerful force that we're dealing with in this case. And uh, we use that as sort of like a, a vehicle for change. So I think that the conversation has been achieved and the fact you are talking to us is a proof of it. Um, I don't think it's a conversation about Italian Vogue. I think it's a, it's a conversation about fashion opening to potentially different ways of thinking about itself. Thanks again to Ferdinando Verderi, creative director at Vogue Italia. Time for a break. When we come back, a test of how closely you followed some lighter news of the week in our news quiz, Who Said That? I'm Elise Hugh, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. Yo, teachers and students, you want to ditch that boring book report and make a podcast instead? NPR's Student Podcast Challenge is here with a new podcast to give you all the tips and tricks to making an amazing podcast of your own. Listen and share with your friends. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Elise Hugh, in for Sam Sanders, here this week at NPR member station KQED with Natasha Tiku, tech culture reporter at The Washington Post. Hey, Natasha. Hey, Elise. Also, Farhad Manju, columnist at The New York Times. Hey, Farhad. Hey. Okay, don't get nervous. It's my favorite time of the week. <laughs> time for Who Said That? It's a simple game. I'll share a quote from the week. You guess who said it. You don't have to name the person who gave the quote if you can at least identify the story I'm referring to. Best two out of three wins. Wait for it. Nothing. But, you know, the prize of victory. Right. So first one. This should be easy. Congratulations to those men. Y'all are staring at me with blank faces. Congratulations to those men. Oh, I have no idea. It sounds like something Trump tweeted. But. Yeah. It's got to be. No, it's far from it. Oh. Think opposite end of the spectrum. Oh. You don't have was, to know the name. It was the Oscars um, director category, and someone was announcing it. Issa Rae. Okay. Oh. Yes, yes. That's actress Issa Rae who said that. She was announcing the Oscar nominees <laughs> on Monday morning, and that line, let's hear the tape. Martin Scorsese, Todd Phillips. 
Sam Mendes. Quentin Tarantino. Bong Joon-ho. Nice. I did it? I did, did it? it? Thank you so much. You did it. Congratulations to those men. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. Yeah, it's her one-line jab after reading the names in that category, which included... I don't know if you noticed, but zero women directors. The Academy failed to acknowledge female filmmakers yet again. Okay, so one point for Farhad. One to nothing. This is your opportunity, Natasha. Quote number two. This is Times Square 42nd Street, where New Yorkers go to relax. Uh, That seems like a candidate who doesn't know anything about New York. I think I should have done that. No, it was sarcastic. It was delivered sarcastically. And I feel like I should have either delivered it more sarcastically or in a more announcery voice. Does that help? Do you want a hint? Yes. Yes. Okay. A new voice is announcing subway stops in New York. Oh, it's Aquafina. Look at you. (laughs) All right. What's the story, Farhad? Uh, She's doing the, um, the subway announcements for one of the trains. I don't know anything about the New York subway, but she's doing the, uh, the announcements. Yeah. For the next week or so on select trains, New Yorkers will hear Golden Globe winner Aquafina announcing stops on the subway. That is actually a high honor. You want to hear a little tape of it? Yes, please. Okay. This is Times Square, 42nd Street, where New Yorkers go to relax. <laughs> this is Grand Central, 42nd Street. Go for the train, stay for the large clock. <laughs> Perfect. Why is this happening? Well, it's sponsored content. The announcements are running right up until the premiere of her new show, Nora from Queens, on Comedy Central. Oh, wow. I didn't know that that was available for SponCon. It hasn't been, right? Historically, I've never heard anyone else. It's the continued selling out of New York. Yeah. Um, we're nothing if not capitalists <laughs> in New York. Um, all right. So, Natasha, I don't know how you come oh my back. God. I can't. But maybe just for your own pride, you should yeah. try to get should, quote number three. I will try. Okay. I've been trying. <laughs> Like I'm, I, Stop not trying. <laughs> Please try now. I'm not not trying. <laughs> okay. Quote number three. I think I've met Mr. Hudson's absurdity with my own absurdity. This is written down. So nobody actually, I don't have tape for this. I think I've met Mr. Hudson's absurdity with my own absurdity. It involves a court motion and a divorce. Divorce. Yeah. Um. Kate Hudson, Rock Hudson. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, if you don't think you're going to get it, I'll just tell you. Um, That's Kansas man David Ostrom. He's a divorce guy who filed a motion for a trial by combat with his ex-wife's lawyer, Mr. Hudson. Wow. (laughs) Featuring the finest Japanese swords he can source or forge in the next 12 weeks. Is this a legal option that is open to people? The court has not yet ruled. Okay. Also, I like that the sword has to be forged anew. (laughs) You know, you can't get a pre-existing sword. (laughs) All right. Congratulations, Farhad. Thank you. You won nothing. (laughs) I will savor it. (laughs) Congrats all the same. Now it is time to end the show as we always do. Each Friday, we ask you to share with us the best thing that happened to you all week. We encourage you to brag, and you do. Let's listen to a few. This is Kylie from Atlanta, Georgia. And the best part of my week is that I randomly started writing my eight-year-old daughter little notes on a pad of paper and leaving them right where she eats her cereal in the morning. And then she'll write back and leave it right by the coffee. And I've been reading it right before I go to work. And it's been the best part of my week. 
this is Lauren from Dallas, Texas, and the best part of my week was that I finally, after almost three years of saving, signed a mortgage for a condo. The best part of my week was that I just passed my nursing PhD qualifying exams. The best part of my week was talking to my brother after he got promoted and so happy about that. This is Clint. And Katie. And the best part of our week was bringing our son Benjamin home from the hospital. The best thing that happened to me this week was that I made the decision to go to Israel for a 10-month teaching fellowship where I'll be helping to teach students English. I'm really excited and nervous at the same time, but I can't wait to go on an adventure and learn about a new country and place to call home. This is Emmett calling from Lincoln, Vermont. And uh, I'm lying in bed, 6 a.m. Best thing that happened to me this week is that my 15-month-old daughter has just slept through the night for the first time ever. And my wife has just slept through the night for the first time ever. <laughs> Thanks for everything you do. Thanks. Thanks. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. Thank you to those listeners, Kylie, Lauren, April, Joseph, Clinton, Katie, Sarah, and Emmett. Thank you for sharing your best thing with us. We listen to them all, even if we can't play them all. To share your own, record an audio file and email it to the show at samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. Best part of y'all's week? I got a huge tub of candy from Amazon. (laughs) Huge tub? How huge? It was way bigger than I thought. (laughs) Like a foot tall tub of now and laters. Oh. I don't know what I'm going to do with all of them because I wasn't expecting it to be that big, but I will eat them, I think. It sounds delicious. What about you? I tried acupuncture for the first time. Ooh. And I loved it. That's a oh, huge you loved win. it. Yeah. I've never tried acupuncture. I Me think. either. I don't know what I was waiting for. <laughs> Natasha Tiku, tech culture reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Farhad Manju, opinion columnist at the New York Times. Thanks, Farhad. Thanks. It's Been a Minute was produced this week by Anjali Sastry, Danny Hensel, and Brent Bachman. Our editor is Kitty Isley. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. The senior vice president of programming at NPR is Anya Grunman. And special thanks to the folks at member station KQED in San Francisco for hosting us this week. I'm Elise Hugh. Sam Sanders is back next week. I know you've missed him. Thank you for listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm four years old. Oh, you forgot to say you're Isabel. Say, hi, I'm Isabel. Hi, I'm Isabel. I'm four years old. <laughs>